Hi there, and welcome to the Og Blog Podcast. Regular listeners will know that this is a podcast that generally focuses on peanuts and the works of Charles M. Schultz and books thereof. And that's a pretty small niche to chase. I am probably the most popular podcast focusing on peanuts in book form, but that doesn't put me in the podcasting big time. That doesn't bring in the big podcash. That's a new term I just made up. Podcash. I think I'll go register a trademark for it before doing a Google to see if anyone has used it before me. If there are any trademark lawyers in my listenership, well, you're probably about to lecture me on the problems with my saying, doing a Google, so maybe I'll skip that. What does bring in the big podcast, TM? True crime stories. Really, things like Serial are all the rage. Spinning out multiple episodes trying to uncover the dark secret of what happened in a few short moments on some distant evening. And not just in podcasts, either. Those do well on TV as well. Lately, I've been watching one called An Innocent Man on Netflix. It's not something I usually watch, but my pal Robert Mayer is one of the talking heads on it, because he wrote a book about the crimes being described. He's a really good writer. His novel, The Origin of Sorrow, is a masterpiece. I'm saying that not just as a friend, I'm saying that as his publisher. And you know you can trust a publisher to tell you when a book is great, right? Right? Why, what motive would I have to lie to you? Except, I suppose, that I'd profit off of every copy sold. No, seriously, it's a really good piece of fiction built around the birth of the Rothschild portion, set in the Jewish ghetto of Frankfurt, Germany in the late 18th century. If that sounds like your thing, it's available in print and in ebook format. Robert Mayer also has a Peanuts connection, in that on the first page of his classic superhero novel, Super Folks, he kills off Snoopy. Really? He mentions how a range of heroes died, including various superheroes and President Kennedy on the list, and then we hit, Even Snoopy had bought it, shot down by the Red Baron, missing in action over France. Quite an audacious thing to do to someone else's character, but then this 1970s novel was a satirical work. It could reasonably be interpreted as playing within the realm of fair use. Charles Schultz didn't stop drawing Snoopy just because Mayer had killed him off. I doubt that he was even aware that it had happened. So anyway, if I want to make this podcast a real hit, I really should turn it into a true crime podcast. But I don't want to give up on it being a Peanuts podcast, and surely there's no way to be both. Or is there? Of course there's a way. There's always a way. So on to today's topic. Did Charles Schultz, beloved creator of Peanuts, did Charles Schultz kill, murder, I say murder, a cartoon character? Now, I know what the hardcore Peanuts fan is thinking. Yes, yes, he did. He killed Charlotte Braun, a loudmouth character who had been introduced into the Peanuts strip in late 1954, an obnoxious character who ended up rubbing everyone the wrong way, not the least of which was her creator himself. When readers complained, he responded not just by pulling the character from the strip. He sent one of the complainers, Ms. Elizabeth Swain of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a sketch of poor Charlotte with an axe sticking out of her head. Now, she doesn't look dead yet, but she does look unhappy about the situation. Perhaps that doesn't rise to the level of murder. Or perhaps that's the fate that befell every character who disappeared from the strip, now buried somewhere in the gutters with an axe sticking out of their head. Belle's son, three, four, and five, Eudora, the list could be endless. But the murder I'm talking of isn't one of those. Those are Schultz's own characters, his to do with what he pleases. No, just as Robert Mayer had killed off Snoopy, Schultz may, I repeat may, have killed off another cartoonist's character over a decade before that. 
The time was the early 1960s, the 1960s as we think of it, with all the hippies and Vietnams and Beatles records and things like that hadn't started yet. In fact, it was so early in the 1960s that not only was President Kennedy still alive, he wasn't even President Kennedy yet, merely Kennedy, Jack, as his friends called him. And Peanuts, Peanuts was popular, not as popular as it would become, but still quite a hit for the comics page, popular enough that big businesses wanted to ride the popularity Ford. The Ford Motor Company, practically the definition of big business at the time, they wanted in on Peanuts. They got the Peanuts characters to advertise their cars, primarily the Ford Falcon, their value model, just the thing for the sort of family that would have kids and a dog and not a lot of money left over. The Peanuts characters were used in TV ads and in brochures, and there were original peanut strips being drawn by Schultz that were running in the big national magazines at the time, back in the days when we had big national magazines. You may have read some of these strips in the 26th and final volume of the Complete Peanut series. And if you did, you're welcome. We put a lot of effort into digging those up. Now, many of those magazine ads are quite straightforward strips, looking much like any other peanut strip except for their vertical layouts. But for some magazine pieces, particularly where there's a single image used more as a spot illustration than as part of a story, Schultz dressed the characters up in some sort of different clothing, often adult clothing, sometimes something fanciful. If you reach into your pile of Life magazines, pull out the one from July 27, 1960, and flip to the Ford Falcon ad, for example, you'll find eight spot illustrations, among which you'll find one with Charlie Brown roller skating, or one with him wearing a big old cabbie hat with a pom-pom on it, for example, like a golfer might wear. Or you might find, and, and this one is not an example, this one is the point of this listing, You might find Lucy wearing not just a dress, as that was her normal attire of the day, but also having a flowered hat, a purse, and a fur stole, as if she's going to a fancy lady's tea. And the stole, well, it still has its head on it. That was the style at the time, not just a strip of fur, but the whole animal wrapped around you, head, feet, and all. It was a time, perhaps, when you were less likely to run into someone who would be upset at you ruining a perfectly good animal just for a fashion statement. Lucy looks quite proud in this ensemble. If you've misplaced this particular issue of life, you can see the picture on the OG blog entry for this episode. Not long before Complete Peanuts 26 came out, I gave a talk at Beaglefest about that book, letting people know what would be in it and showing them a few choice pieces that, for whatever reason, had not made the cut. And one of these images was the one that I just described, Proud Lucy. After the talk, the one and only Kathleen Shea, well, actually, I imagine there are other Kathleen Shays in the world, but the other ones didn't make all those lovely quilts displayed in her book, Peanuts Quilted Celebrations. You should check that book out, particularly if you're into both peanuts and cloth crafts. There's some lovely stuff in there. Kathleen, she came up and asked me if that animal she's wearing might be a ferret. I reckon that it might. While such full-body stoles were more commonly made with foxes and minks, Some were made from ferrets, and I could see how that particular football-shaped head with a bulbous nose and a couple of ear bumps could be seen as ferrety. But I did not voice the odd suspicion that I'd previously formed around that image. Instead, I took that image and showed it to some of my comics-y friends, comics creators and comics experts, and some of them voiced the same thing that I suspected. That it was not a ferret, nor mink, nor fox, nor alley cat. We all came to the same thought. This was a jeep. 
And some of you are looking around in bewilderment, which really is not a wise thing to do if you're listening to podcasts while you're driving. Those people are wondering how a rectangular military-grade road vehicle could be confused with a ferret. But that is not the kind of Jeep we're talking about. No, no quarter-ton, four-by-four command reconnaissance trucks here. But the comic strip buffs know what I'm talking about, don't you? We're talking about Popeye. No, wait, you're right. We're talking about Thimble Theater, the daily comic strip which introduced the character Popeye to the world. Thimble Theater, created by a man named Elsie Seagar, was around for about ten years before it gave birth to its greatest character. Popeye the Sailor Man first appeared in January of 1929 and became the strip's breakout hit. He's still around today, in the papers and in animation, although... He has been battered and bruised along the way. But the spinach gobbling sailor was not the last character introduced into the strip. In 1936, Seagar added to his series a magical, four-dimensional animal known as Eugene the Jeep. Now, Schultz was a thimble theater reader. He used to draw Popeye on the other kids' notebooks at school, and he certainly knew about Eugene. Eugene became a major force in the strip, for better or for worse. And Schultz was one of those who thought that it was for the worse. An article in the Washington Post, which ran the weekend that Schultz died, notes that Schultz thought that Eugene the Jeep detracted from the strip's essential Popeye versus Bluto nature. When he worried about his own strip deteriorating, he said that Spike could very well be Eugene the Jeep. So perhaps Schultz had drawn Eugene for his school friends, and that practice influenced how he drew certain type of quitters, and that showed when he had to draw the head on the stole. Or maybe, just maybe, this was Schultz getting revenge on Eugene for lowering the quality of Thimble Theater by killing him off and using his dead carcass as a decoration. Maybe he has Jeep blood on his hands. Now, I wasn't the only one with a view on this matter. Kathleen saw my blog comments and gave her own response. In the interest of community service and with the goal of meeting our obligations under the federal equal time provisions, we hereby present Kathleen's alternative view and in proper true-crime fashion, where we do not have Kathleen to read it, we'll be using a recreation, which is me doing a bad British accent, which has nothing to do with Kathleen at all. I still believe that our animal in question is a ferret. I base this on the following, all of which is in my own head, very little of which is verifiable. A. I am not sure you've ever seen a live ferret. Did you know ferrets are illegal in California? They have been for many, many years. There is currently a movement underway to legalize them, but I cannot assume you've ever met one. And if you've not, please believe me, this animal Lucy is carrying looks a great deal like a ferret. B. Further, I would also suggest that this animal is not meant to be a fur garment stole, but is actually a drawing of a live ferret. Uh, now, I'm pretty sure you're rolling your eyes, because you would probably know if Charles Schultz had any connection to live ferrets. So, as for the rest of my theory as to why Lucy would be carrying a live ferret. Really, I'm just making most of it up, but maybe. Maybe it could be true. See, we know Charles Schultz served in Europe in World War II. I could not find any info on where he served specifically, but domestic ferrets are pretty well known throughout Europe, and in fact the military of Great Britain used them during World War II to pull wires through small tunnels and pipes. This info I believe to be true and verifiable. I suggest that Mr. Schultz became familiar with ferrets during his military service in Europe, and, as most people do, found them both adorable and irresistible. D. After his service, 
Mr. Schultz returned home and was a busy guy, getting his cartooning career off the ground, finding a wife, starting a family, ultimately moving to California, where, once again, there are no legal domestic ferrets. E. I would also suggest that he remembered those ferrets he might have met in Great Britain. In fact, he thought about them from time to time. And when Queen Elizabeth visited the United States in 1957, it brought those memories back to him. F. Now, I know I am already way out on a limb, so why not keep going? I think that in the referenced Ford Falcon print ad of the early 1960s, Lucy actually looks a great deal like Queen Elizabeth. Her hat and purse really do remind me of something that Queen Elizabeth would and did wear. Even Lucy's face and hair remind me of the Queen in this drawing. Gee, so my final hypothesis. I believe that this drawing is not a reminder or throwback to Eugene the Jeep or E.C. Seagar, neither of which I heard of prior to your blog. Rather, with this drawing, I think Mr. Schultz is referencing Queen Elizabeth and Great Britain and his respect for both, and his memory of ferrets in Europe. Maybe he's also making a political statement about the fact that ferrets were not legal in California. 8. As a personal aside, I am also much more comfortable with the thought that he was drawing a live ferret than a dead animal meant to be a fur garment. So that's about it. I'm sure you think I'm nuts. Oh, I wouldn't worry about that, Kathleen. I basically assume that everyone is nuts. The world makes so much more sense that way. Let me assure you that I have indeed encountered ferrets, both legal ones, during the first half of my life back in the Northeast, and contraband ferrets during the second half of my life here in California. Although it's been a while since the last sighting, which took place when I was house hunting almost a decade ago, I was taking a look at one house, starting to check out the garage, noted certain cage critters and some ferret posters on the wall. Well, as well as a pot poster and was quickly shooed out of the garage. Now, the cannabis is legal in California, but the ferret still is not. Which brings me to my point. Even if you're right and I'm wrong, either Schultz committed jeepicide, or Schultz gave Lucy a living ferret. And as Schultz was living in California by 1960, it was illegal for him to have a living ferret to give her. Oh, the sordid truths behind the funnies. Well, that's enough true crime for now. Next time, I want to do a true crime episode. Maybe I'll have to look at illegal underage discount psychiatric practices or the great pumpkin cult conning youth into missing their tricks or treats. Oh, good grief. Actually, I have no idea what I'll do next week. The interviews I was planning fell through. I'm still building up questions for a mailbag episode, so send anything you'd like to ask me to questions at aug.com. That's A-A-U-G-H dot com. But be aware that I'll only answer them on the air if I have an answer that will be of interest to the folks listening. I'm not going to waste their time with a lot of, I don't knows. But in the meantime, you can stop by the blog. That's blog.og.com. And until next time, may someone give you a stole that's just as alive as you want it to be. May your crimes not be ferreted out. And may all your griefs be good ones.